Welcome to the Limited Slip Podcast In-Depth Discussion, a weekly hour-long podcast where we go deep down into automotive news and car culture topics. Your hosts are me, Dave, an attorney and car importer, and Borja, the mechanic extraordinaire. This week, we discuss Honda leaving F1, why they're doing it, and where that leaves Red Bull, McLaren's new supercar platform, and our feature this week, part one of our series on super SUVs. This is David and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast. Hey, moving on to some motorsports uh, news. Well, big, big news out of F1 and Honda. And this uh, has not only come to a big surprise to the F1 community and fans, but I would bet 100 bucks, and I'm sure that I wouldn't lose, that none has been more surprised than Red Bull. Um, what can we say about this? Well, um, let's just say Honda has been... They've come in and out of F1 a few times. And their most successful time with F1 is when they were uh, partnered up with McLaren. And I'm not talking this last time. I'm talking in their glory days of Ayrton Senna uh, with, of course, the McLaren-Honda partnership that they have. Fantastic engine, tons of success. Uh, they actually they left. They came back under their own actually team bar Honda or Honda and they, they had, had a lot su- of success with Jensen Button. They did. They yeah. did have some I mean they they weren't at the very top but they were they did very good. They they left again the F1 and then they expressed some interest in coming back to F1 and they said, "You know what? Let's uh let's have this uh, McLaren Honda partnership uh let's let's give that a go again." And for those who follow F1, we know that that was, um, at the very least, interesting, that partnership. Um, Plagued with issues, uh, underperforming engine, and to the point that the tension and the relationship between McLaren and Honda was too much that they had to call it quits. And that's why... And all of that happened really right as Honda was figuring out the engine. I mean, I think they had not only performance issues, they had reliability issues, which is maybe even the bigger problem. The McLaren relationship fell apart just as Honda was starting to figure it out and get the performance to the place where it needed to be, to be competitive at least. And Red Bull came in and said, hey, we'll take that. We don't want to be reliant on, we, you know, Mercedes won't sell us an engine. Ferrari won't sell us an engine. That leaves Renault. Renault is maybe not the performance star that we want. So we're going to take a chance. And they went with Honda and, and it worked out for them. Yeah, it was a, the transition was actually very interesting because, you know, after the relationship with McLaren was in shackles team and see how that goes. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. You know, that, that next year that they introduced the Honda engine in the Toro Rosso, because this, for those listeners who are not familiar, Toro Rosso and Red Bull, they're, part of the same team. You know, Toro Rosso is kind of the, the lower level, lower tier. That's when a lot of their young drivers, they, they get introduced to F1. They arrive into Toro Rosso. They get some years of experience. And if they perform well, then they get moved up to the Red Bull team. So at this time, Red Bull uh, had signed and had been for many years with, as you said, Renault. And as a matter of fact, they were able to win four championships with the Renault power unit. So it's not like Renault hadn't delivered uh, to them in the past. It is true that the last years, 
the the engine was not as good as in their heyday when they were winning everything. Um, so Red Bull was looking to spice things up and try to try something different. And as you said, Mercedes was not going to sell them an engine. Ferrari was not going to sell them an engine. So they only had two choices, either stay with Renault or give Honda a try. Toro Rosso picked up the, the Honda engine and they knew, hey, you know, Toro Rosso is not a team that Red Bull pushes for them to win races. It's their experimental team. They try things out and if they work, they move those things up to the Red Bull team. And I think that because Honda didn't have the pressure that they had with McLaren of we need to win races, we need to win races and we need to be at the top, that Red Bull and Honda were fine with taking a year to try to iron out the issues that the powertrain had. It actually made them have a very successful year. And when I say successful, I'm not meaning that they won races, but they were able to get the reliability sorted out and get a good uh, base where they can build. And it was so good that the Honda engine was only with Toro Rosso for one year. After the after one year, they, they kept the engine with Toro Rosso, but then they also introduced it in the Red Bull team. And, they, and they've had a lot of success. I mean, you have to keep in mind. They've had, yeah. The the V6 hybrid era has been dominated by Mercedes, right? I mean, they've they've won the championship yes. every year, and they've been widely considered to have the most reliable, the most powerful, and the most efficient engine. And it seems like Honda's actually done a pretty good job of catching up. They're certainly better than Ferrari this year, yes. more reliable and more power. It seems like they've exceeded Renault as well. So it's a, it's a good, it's a good solid motor. It's a little bit surprising to see them pull out right as they caught up. Right. I guess, I guess the issue is of course, Honda is looking at this as an investment and their reputation was so marred by the way that it, you know, the first generation of the motor with McLaren and, and the absolutely terrible reliability issues they had. I'm not sure that it has ever evolved into a good investment for them. They can't come and say, Hey, look at our awesome formula one. Look how good we are in formula one by our road cars, because no one wants to look at, you know, it's like, yeah, uh, you know, cover your eyes when you look at the formula one, cause it was so bad at first. Um, so I, and, and also making an engine is, is very expensive and they don't have their own team. So I'm not sure that it was ever the investment that they wanted um, and they've said that they're going to take the money that they use for formula one and they're going to use it for continued research into electric and fuel cell vehicles. But that, that leaves the question, what the heck is Red Bull going to do? Yes. Cause, um, I don't think Mercedes is still interested in selling them an, uh, uh, an engine, uh, to this day and age, uh, even if Ferrari were open to the idea of selling them an engine, I don't think Red Bull would want it right now. Um, which only leaves Renault. But the thing, too, is when Red Bull parted ways with Renault, it didn't sit well with Renault. Yeah, Renault was very um, so, unhappy about that. But anyway, besides uh, that's beside the point. But if, if they didn't have a star driver like Max, this would still be big news, but it wouldn't be as interesting as right now. Because let's remember that Max still has contract with Red Bull. And today, in 2020, the only person that has come close to being able to battle the Mercedes has been Max. Uh, and he's tried to do that consistently. Yeah. And, and the gap between him and his teammate is by far the largest in formula one. Yeah. 
we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll be definitely looking forward to see what Red Bull decides to do. Could this be the end for them? Are they pulling out? Are they going to come up with an agreement with Mercedes, Ferrari, or Renault? We have no idea, but stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll see. My, my guess is that they're going to do a deal with Renault, but I would also not be surprised if they pull in a third manufacturer, uh, you know, a Tag or a Cosworth or somebody. Yeah, I it was just a rumor, but I do know that the FIA, uh, or well, I don't know because it's a rumor, but the rumor is that the FIA has approached both Volkswagen and as well as Porsche, which, as we know, it's it's part of Volkswagen nowadays too. Uh, they've approached them to develop a power unit for F1. Yeah, I think. So, yeah, I was going to say that. I think Porsche would be interested, and you know, maybe maybe marketed under a tag or you know some some other brand maybe not directly as a porsche engine but we'll see yeah we'll see. yeah time will tell yeah i think one of the interesting parts with this whole development is honda is actually staying in indycar and it turns out that that is primarily because indycar the indycar effort is funded by honda north america not honda central so i think that's that's an interesting thing now indycar has a really similar engine setup they have a twin turbo v6 and next year they're switching to a twin turbo v6 hybrid basically like f1 i mean there, there's some differences right the f1 engine is 1.6 liters the indycar engine is it's two and a, it's 2.2 liters now it's going to switch to 2.4 for next year i think actually the biggest difference is that indycar uses a standard a standard fuel it has some ethanol but it's basically pump gas and F1 uses bespoke fuels. So every every team in F1 develops their own fuel. Now, so I, I'm not sure that it's a direct you know, comparison there, but it is interesting that they're pulling out of F1 while they have a similar engine set up in IndyCar. I would think that there would be some type of efficiency to be gained by doing both. Yeah, I, I hope I hope they get into the Le Mans hypercar category. I mean, again, like if you're going to spend all of that that money and effort into developing a twin turbo V6 for, for IndyCar, you might as well stick the thing in, you know, a hypercar chassis and let's see, run it at Le Mans. Yeah. Like, uh, what could that be? An NSX maybe that would be good. This episode of the limited slip podcast is brought to you by Retromobile designs. If you are looking for auto and racing themed t-shirts that look cool to the average show, but get an approving nod from other gearheads, check them out at retromobiledesigns.com. That's retromobiledesigns.com. So McLaren has been using the same basic vehicle architecture since they've started selling road cars, since the MP4-12C. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Since the 12C, they've been using the same platform, the same architecture, I should say. And they are now announcing that next year, this is really soon. They must've been working on it for a while. Next year, they're going to create a new architecture and they're going to debut it in the 570S successor, which is actually still a fairly fresh car. I'm a little bit surprised they're making a successor so quickly. Now, also the the 570S successor is going to use an entirely different powertrain. So also all of their cars have used the same engine architecture, the same engine, you know, structure, 
right? This is 3.8 liter V8 with seven speed dual clutch transmission. This new car is gonna have an entirely new uh, powertrain. It's gonna have an entirely new architecture. So it's gonna have a twin turbo V6 hybrid with about 18 miles of range. And, and also, it's also gonna have a new design language. They've, in their press release, they talked a lot about how they've evolved their design language. So yeah, I mean, this is gonna address a lot of the different criticisms that some have had for McLaren, which is basically all the cars are the same, right? So I mean, what we have here is a mid-engine hybrid supercar with the, you know, the twin turbo V6 engine. That sounds, that's a formula that sounds a little bit familiar. It does. I mean, it is a somewhat fair criticism, but also in McLaren's defense, even if all cars are somewhat the same, they are uh, extremely well cars, uh, fast, uh, not the most reliable. And I think that's part of the reason why, or the main reason why they depreciate like none other. But if you're looking for um, a, a extreme performance vehicle, you can't go wrong with a McLaren nowadays. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And I guess one of the other things with this new vehicle architecture is it's going to be more flexible. So they're, they'll be able to differentiate the different vehicles more. So this, you know, that McLaren has their vehicle lineup set up into their sports series, which is kind of the, the more inexpensive car, inexpensive for McLaren, the, the, the more attainable cars that are yeah. more focused on being a sports car. And then they have a supercar range, right? So that's, so you have the 570S in the sports series. And then in the supercar range, you have the, the 720S, which is much more oriented towards all out performance. They, they care a lot about the numbers and, and they do very well in that. And then you have the hyper, the hypercar categories is more limited, limited production, very special cars. So this is going to be able, they're going to be able to differentiate those cars more with this new architecture, which I think will be a good thing for McLaren. Uh, and it also will allow them to have fully electric models in the future, which is also an interesting. Now they haven't really talked about their plans for that, or if they even have plans for that, but at least this new architecture will allow them to do that in the future. Yeah, who has done that? Oh, wait, we were just talking about it a minute ago, NSX. Right, and and guess what? Nobody buys the NSX. Nobody, yeah, nobody bought them, yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, hey, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maserati is also doing a twin-turbo V6 hybrid mid-engine supercar, and it looks gorgeous. So we got a lot of people coming into this category that's an unproven category. You know, speaking of another manufacturer that has dabbled with a turbo V6 and they actually pound out a lot better than the NSX did and Acura or Honda did is Ford with their GT. Yeah, but that's not a hybrid though. No, it's not a hybrid. Uh, but you know, when you think about these big vehicles, uh, you think about big V8s, V10s, V12s. Um, that's slowly but surely going away. And I think it's also part of the mentality. If I'm going to be dropping this amount of money, I need to have a big engine. You know, well, I'm dropping a couple hundred thousand dollars 
and I'm getting a V6. Um, there's been a bit of a you know negative view towards that. Well, you want something special, and right? I think the NS you want something special, yeah. And I think that's what the Ford delivered, and I think that's what the NSX didn't. I I think that the NSX is a great car. I just think it was overpriced. Uh, I think people would buy them at a much uh, lower price, somewhere around the 110 to maybe 115, 120. I think that's would be a fair market value for a new NSX. But you know, if you're going to be spending close to two hundred thousand dollars on a new car, I think there's more interesting, more special vehicles out there that you can purchase for that kind of money. Yeah, it does. It does. I've thought a little bit about this in in the sense of kind of my thought on the NSX has been it failed because it's an Acura. I'm not sure though, because like if you go and you buy, you're going to spend that type of money on a, on a, on a sports car, you can go and you can buy a Ferrari or Lamborghini or whatever. And just because it's a Ferrari, it's special. Acura doesn't have that luxury. Acura has to have a car that's interesting and special on its own, independent of its brand. And so, but, but you bring up a really good point, which is so does Ford. Yeah, so does Ford. Ford GT made something that was really special that people loved. Yeah. Despite it being a, a you know three and a half liter V6 engine. Yeah. Uh, Same one, you know, developed out of the F150 EcoBoost. Right. Uh, you know, and I think you know people may think, well, it's just a three and a half liter from the F150. I just think it uh, it adds more charm to the to the GT because it's more of a blue collar type of vehicle. You know, it's 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 from humble beginnings type of thing, and it it has that that story. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if the the problem with the NSX is that it's inaccurate because well the the previous version of the NSX sold and quite well, and they're appreciating in value. Yeah. Um, we also saw uh, something very very special made by Toyota Lexus when they did the LFA. Right. Um, however, it's interesting with the LFA is it wasn't really that popular when they were making it. It's when they stopped making it and a couple of years went by that people started noticing it, maybe because you couldn't get your hands on a new one anymore, that everybody realized how special the LFA is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't see how the NSX is is special. I mean, what is it yeah. exactly? It's a... You know, it's, it's, I guess if you want a hybrid supercar and you don't want to spend a million dollars, then that's your only choice. You know, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And, and that's, you're exactly right. I think that's the reason why they haven't sold quite well is because of that price range, you can get something far more special. Now, if you were to drop the car, the price may be, like I said, around the hundred grand, 120, 130 for a new one. That makes it a good value for the money. And at that price point, maybe you think, well, it doesn't have to be that special because I'm getting a lot of car for the money. Before we get to the rest of the show, take a moment to subscribe. If you enjoy our insights and want to help keep our lights on, you can visit our businesses. Orha runs a full service auto repair shop in Orem, Utah. You can find him on Facebook at Auto Pros Utah. And trust me, he really can't fix anything. I import cars from South America and Europe, primarily classic trucks like FJ40s and Land Rovers, but I can help you source any classic car in any condition that you want, from cars that were never sold in the US 
to trucks that are just cheaper with less rust overseas. Visit me at DaveTheCarImporter.com. There's no reason for you to not have the car of your dreams, even if it is forbidden fruit. All right, welcome back. Now we're going to get to our, our feature for today. We're going to talk about super SUVs. We're going to do a couple episodes on this and we're going to start off. We're going to talk about what is a super SUV and I'm going to, I'm going to straight away because I don't have a good answer. I'm going to straight away throw that over to Borja and hope he does. Well, um, I, I don't know if I have a straight answer either because super SUV could mean different things to different people. Um, but, um, Regardless, it's definitely a, a topic that is very hot right now. As we spoke earlier on our podcast, um, out of the top 10 vehicles that uh, were sold in the United States for Q3, only two of them were sedans. Everything else was SUVs or trucks. So there's really a crave right now for SUVs. And the, the whole super SUV thing or high performance maybe SUVs, it's something that um, has been around for a few years now. It's not something that it's brand new. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we first saw it when Porsche came out um, with their Cayenne and the BMW with the M package. Um, and now, of course, the most recent uh, manufacturers that have joined this super SUV trend um, is Lamborghini, um, as well as Ferrari, that it will be coming soon. Um, so, so yeah, I guess super SUVs. We'll be talking about high performance SUVs, uh, well, big power. Well, and I, I want to. I guess if we're we're making the analogy super SUV, you know, we're saying that because it's it's like a supercar, right? I mean, supercar wasn't a thing for. You know, if you go back into the '80s, no one, or or maybe more accurately, the '70s, no one was really saying the term supercar. Mm-hmm. Right. So you had sports cars, you had, and then a, high performance sports, sports cars. cars. Yeah. You had high performance cars. Then maybe you had sports cars and there wasn't really anything above that. You just had faster versions of sports cars. And then along came, I mean, you can kind of debate the genesis of it. I'm going to say, you know, here comes the Lamborghini Countach and people started calling it a supercar. I mean, it was, you know, extremely fast, you know, very high top speed. And it, it looked just something beyond what a sports car was, even the Ferrari sports cars of the time. And that kind of started that. Now we have, of course, we have what we call hyper cars, which is, you know, even a step beyond the supercar. So, you know, I'm not sure that these terms are very well defined, but for, for me, what I'm talking about when I say a super SUV is I'm just saying the highest performance version that a manufacturer sells of their SUVs. So the formula, you know, there's, there's definitely a trend, right? And the formula seems to be something along the lines of take a, a medium sized SUV and stick the most powerful engine that your auto group makes inside of it. So that, that can mean different things for different, for different people, right? Ford has the edge ST and they have they have a relatively small twin turbo V6 that they have inside the edge. I actually seen a couple of those, those around, you know, that's not their most powerful engine, but that's their highest performance SUV. Now, 
kind of on the other end of that, you have Mercedes-Benz with their AMG products where they have their four liter twin turbo V8, which is a really, really impressive engine. You see it in, in legitimate supercars, the, yep. the AMG GT and they, as well as uh, Aston Martin, right? Yeah. As well as, as well as in the Aston Martins and they, you know, they, they are happy to stick 600 horsepower twin turbo V8s inside of their SUVs. Aston Martin using that same engine, they have their DBX, Alfa Romeo, they have their twin turbo V6, which is, which is a, a really, really amazing engine. I, in my opinion, the best V6 as far as character and performance goes. So, you know, they're happy to stick that in their Stelvio. Um, you know, I mean, and this goes all the way up into Rolls Royce. They stick a twin turbo V12 in theirs. You have, and, it, and it's not just necessarily larger is better. You have Volvo also. They have their inline four turbocharged, supercharged hybrid combination motor that they they have in their Volvo T8. Now, Volvo is not really a, this, this isn't really a performance car, but my point is that they're taking their most powerful engine and they're sticking it in an SUV. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's part of it. There's not like you would see in a performance car or a sports car, there's not really any effort being made to lighten the vehicles. Now they are making efforts in other areas. I actually think uh, I may have misspoken when I say that maybe the, the Cayenne uh, could have been one of the, one of the, to come into this whole super um, SUV when you look at Porsche and Mercedes Benz, you have active, you have, uh, you know, you have all types of active systems on the car to make it more quick and to hide its weight. So you have rear steering, you have active, uh, anti-roll bars, you have, you have all types of stuff going on to make these more sports car like while driving. So I, that's kind of how I see this category um it actually very well i i forgot about this one until now which is what about the lamborghini lm002 i think that that's yeah that probably could have qualified maybe as the first um, super suv and I, yeah, I following think, I, the exact same recipe that you just said you know what's the the best engine that they have well at the time it was the v12 that they have in the Countach, yeah. and that's what they put in the suv yeah, no, and that's and that was absolutely a, a very very special vehicle. I, I'm a little on the edge. I don't even know if the LMO2 was was actually even an SUV or whether it qualifies as a truck. Um, you know, it has a really small truck bed on it. Pick a yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm not I'm not even a hundred percent sure, but there I think people widely consider that to be an SUV. And and yeah, it's absolutely. Mm, probably the genesis of a truly high performance vehicle. Now that was a little bit different because that was truly an off-road vehicle. I, I think another starting point for the genesis of the super SUV could be the GMC Typhoon. So during that time, GM, their highest performance motor, this is, we're talking late eighties, early nineties, they're still kind of trying to figure out the whole emissions thing. And so their highest performance motor was actually a twin turbo V6 rather than a, you know, like a big block V8 or, or anything. And they, they had, they had put this, this turbo V6 into performance cars, into legitimate, uh, you know, what we would maybe call muscle cars. 
and they took it and they stuck it in the in the GMC Typhoon, a small SUV. And there you go. I think that's maybe a, a, a genesis of the performance SUV as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the Typhoon because um, I also had forgotten about that, but it was probably the most interesting car that GM made at the time. Um, this small SUV with the V6 was actually faster than a Corvette. Yeah. Um, and a Ferrari. Yeah, and a Ferrari. I mean, uh, I'm looking up some of the numbers right now. And mind you, this is in 1992. So we're not talking about five or 10 years ago. In 1992, current driver reported that they were able to get this small SUV from zero to 60 in 5.3 seconds. Yeah, which, which is legitimately, that's legitimately fast. My, my yeah. view is anything, anything in the fives is a quick car, even in a modern context. And I, and I have to say, I misspoke. I called it a, the Typhoon. I said that I had a twin turbo V6 as a, a single turbo. But um, yeah, I, I do think though that the, the Cayenne is kind of the first in this line of unbroken performance SUVs because they, they you know, GMC made the Typhoon and then they stopped, right? Lamborghini yeah. made the LM002 and then they stopped. This is a more of a mass production. Uh, that's what the Cayenne brought over is, you know, yeah, as you said, it wasn't a, a limited series vehicle uh, that came and went because, you know, we, as you said, the, the LM002, it came and went and we've never seen it again. And the Typhoon, it was the same thing. It came and went and we never saw it again. But the Cayenne, it's still here. Um, so, Yeah, and I think that another thing to think about is are these sporting SUVs, are they actually kind of the new muscle car in, in a way? So I was thinking about this. It, it, may, it makes sense when you look at it. Okay, what are people actually buying, right? Most people are buying small to medium-sized crossovers. That's what the numbers tell us. That's what people are, are actually purchasing. And if you go back into the late 60s, when the muscle car era was getting its its you know, and it's prime. What were people buying? Well, they were buying mid-size uh, sedans, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really what they wanted. And so what did you do if you wanted to make a performance car and you wanted to make it accessible, right? Not a sports car, but a performance car. Well, you went and you took your mid-size sedan, chopped a couple doors off of it, shrunk the wheelbase a little bit, and you took whatever V8 you could fit inside of it and you stuffed it inside of it. And that's what, that was kind of the formula that they used. And I think that we're seeing something fairly similar go on now. Now, some, some companies are really kind of taking this to extreme like Mercedes with the AMG. They have an AMG version of every single SUV that they make small, medium and large. But if you look at again, like the Ford edge ST, now, now the Edge ST is not like in the same performance league as these AMGs, right? But my point is that they're taking the most common SUV that they sell and they're making a performance version of it, right? They're making it a little bit more sporty. I think that, I think in that perspective, you are kind of seeing these super SUVs as in a way the new muscle cars, but I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? No, I think uh, I think you're right, um, and that's a that's an excellent point that you made because you're absolutely right. You know, these muscle cars that we saw back in the '60s, they were, even though they they chopped off two doors, 
um, that were actually extremely practical. I mean, you, the people sitting in the front seats, there was plenty of space, same thing in the rear, um, and you had a big size trunk. So they were looking for the one car that could do it all, that could yeah. haul the family, yeah. could haul uh, luggage. But then when you wanted to have fun, you know, that's why you went with a big engine because you could have some fun with it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And people then had kind of a different idea of what even was a family car. It was not uncommon for people to have large coupes as a family car. And right, then you just take yeah. the kids and throw them in the back and you didn't really have seat belts or anything. Yeah. yeah. I, I was I was thinking about this and I decided to text my dad who was alive and driving during that era. And um, I... I, I, so I asked him, I, you know, just said, how would you define a muscle car? I, I, actually, exactly. I'm just going to read it. So exactly what I said was, how would you have defined a muscle car in the sixties and the seventies? And this is what he said back to me. He said, the muscle car definitions really didn't come into effect until after the gas shortage and gas rationing of 1973. After 1973, they started making smaller, more fuel efficient cars and everybody hated them. Then they looked back on the good old days when fuel was not an issue. Cubic inches and horsepower were nostalgic and referred to as muscle cars. In the 60s, nobody thought about muscle cars. They thought about how many cubic inches and how much horsepower the car had. My Mustang had a 289 cubic inch V8 with two four-barrel carburetors. In hindsight, that was a muscle car. Blaine, which is a relative, Blaine had a Mercury with a 423 cubic inch. That was a muscle car too. We even drag raced each other one day to see who had the fastest car and to my chagrin, he beat me. And my dad has all types of stories about, you know, drag racing in the late sixties and early seventies um, with his, with his Mustang. He even, he even actually went on because I think that this is an important, I think this is an important concept for our discussion. He even went on and he said, and in, in a further down in the check in the text chain, he said, my 289 V8 was too small to be taken seriously, except that it had big carburetors. That made it a contender. Uh, to be an enviable car, it had to be a V8 with at least 312 cubic inches. And I was talking to him about this idea of, is it possible to have a, a you know, quote unquote muscle car without a V8? Is that, is that too ingrained in what makes a muscle car mus a muscle car? And I said to him, hey, look, you know, if you go and you buy a Mercedes Benz, with you can get a two liter turbo with 400 horsepower. And, and that's, that's what he replied back. He was like, you know, the, the size doesn't necessarily make it. It's really just about having the performance. So I thought that was, I thought that was an interesting idea when we're coming and we're looking at, at these SUVs. So for example, yeah. you have Jeep right now, you can get a track Hawk, you know, which is, 700 horsepower SUV, but you can also get an SRT with a more mild V8. And I, I think that both kind of qualify under what we're talking about. Yeah. And it's interesting to, to uh, make a, a quick point on what your, your dad told you on that text. It's interesting that they considered the 289 as uh, not really, you know, the bad boy, type of thing. For those of, uh, of our listeners who are not familiar with cubic inches, we're talking about a 4.7 liter V8, um, which in today's day and age, a 4.7, it's not considered a small engine. Yeah, but when you compare it to 
for example, back in those times of the 60s and 70s, like uh, the seven liter galaxy, then 4.7 does look uh, a little bit whimsical compared to the big ones. Yeah. Um, but what are some of the vehicles that would qualify today in this super SUV class? Like you said, the, the Trackhawk or the SRT from, from Jeep. What are the manufacturers uh, have vehicles today? Well, as I've, I, I did start to make a list so we could at least talk about them in a, in a future podcast. I, I think in my mind, the Alfa Romeo Stelvio, the, the Quadrifoglio is, I think that's maybe in my mind, the epitome of what we're talking about. The Stelvio is. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we spoke about this also uh, earlier in the podcast. Um, I think that Porsche was, it's the best example that we can see as far as these SUVs allows them to do other interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, which is great because we, we spoke about how the, uh, the new Porsche uh, Taycan EV uh, sold better than the 911 as well as a 718 over Q3 uh, of this year. But even though it did sell better than those, the 911 and the 718, it was nowhere near close to the Macan or the um, Cayenne. Which... Right. And, and I think that another aspect of that is also that these SUVs have really high margins. So the, the automakers are extra motivated to try to sell them. Not only can they sell yeah. them in a, in a big volume, but they have really high margins. Yeah. Which like we say, you know, the great thing about this is that there's people buying them because they want them, but it allows Porsche to do other interesting vehicles that otherwise, if they wouldn't have these high sales SUVs, they may not be able to afford to do that. Yeah, I, I think it's no coincidence that the GT3 came along pretty much at the same time as the Cayenne. So let you chew on that for a second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and... But yes, you have very interesting cars that Porsche has been able to bring out. Like you said, the GT3, the GT3 RS, the GT2, the GT2 RS. Um, you have the 918, the Carrera GT. All these are vehicles that um, it does beg the question, could, could Porsche would have afforded to build them in the first place? And if they would, would have they actually gone down that road if they didn't have the nice comfortable cushion that the Panamera and the Cayenne and the Cayman um, offers them? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the answer is no. I think that that's exactly why they're able to make those vehicles. Those are the things that they're really interested in making. Like if you go and you talk to an engineer at Porsche or a designer at Porsche, they really want to be the ones who are working in the GT program yeah. over there. But, you know, the Cayenne is what pays the bills. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's interesting Cayennes. And I think that's kind of the point is, is you have a lot of these vehicles are actually pretty interesting, interesting to drive. And, and I guess just one more point on, on this with the, the muscle car affiliation is I think when you look at the Cayenne and, and why it's so profitable, I think that you have to look at the whole Volkswagen auto group because yeah. how many cars are sharing that platform? How many SUVs, super SUVs are sharing that platform? I mean, what you have, we have, you the, have Audi, the Touareg right? in Europe. Yeah, you have the Touareg with Volkswagen. With yeah. Audi, you have the, the Q8 and Q7 and, and Audi has the RS Q8 now, which is actually, I think, gonna be a really uh, compelling package. You have, what else? The Lamborghini Urus, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Which is, I think the, I think that one stretched the, the platform a little bit, but it's still the same platform. And then what else you have? Uh, the Bentley Bentayga. Um, you have you have multiple products on this platform. And of course that allows them to do a couple of things. One is to save money, but two is actually they're able to put in a lot of engineering resources to make it really good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's part of the success that Porsche has had. And I think that you saw that also in the muscle car era where you had Fords and Mercury's, right. And you had Plymouth's and Dodges, you had Pontiac's and Chevy's. So they were able to spread out that and, I think that you're starting to see that more and more now as well. Yeah. And you know, when it, now that you bring up the Volkswagen group, it's the same story with their smaller SUVs. I mean, you have the, the Tiguan and Volkswagen, and then you have the Q5 for Audi and you have the Macan for uh, Porsche. And they all shared the exact, pretty much the exact same base platform. Um, so yeah, and this is actually a very interesting point that we spoke a few weeks ago uh, when when we were talking about Maserati following this trend also, mm-hmm. and and how good this could be for Maserati in the short, medium, and long term uh, of of the brand. Yeah, um, yeah it's, I think it's it's worked incredibly well for Volkswagen, and there's no question about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Let's let's talk a little bit about do these cars actually make any sense? Because when you look at the weight of these vehicles, they're they're heavy, right? And and you have a lot of them are they're well outside of the weight that would be considered a sports car. Obviously, they're mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're they're crossovers, right? Uh, I don't think that there's really. I think that they're all really heavy. I mean, we're talking five thousand pounds. There's a couple in the four thousand pound range, but most of them. Most of them are around 5,000 pounds. Does it make any sense to buy a performance vehicle that's 5,000 pounds? That's the first question. And two, do you think that we're going to see these spread, this idea of these performance SUVs spread to more pedestrian and smaller sized SUVs? So, so for example, we have, I know that AMG is already doing that, but are we going to yeah. see Volkswagen come out with a performance SUV, for example? A, a small performance SUV. I actually think on the, in the case of Volkswagen, no. And um, the reason how, I'm saying how about this Toyota, is Toyota. Um, well, if one of these days they decide to actually do a Toyota built by Toyota, that it's a high performance vehicle, then maybe yes. Um, but until that happens, probably not. Um, but when it comes to, to Volkswagen, I don't think they'll do it mainly because of the GTI. Right. I think, you know, the GTI is really what, well, after the, the original Beetle, the GTI is probably the second most important vehicle that Volkswagen has ever built. And it's still a big moneymaker for them today. And the cult following is massive. So I think they have a really good formula right there. And I don't think it would be wise of them to mess with that formula. You don't um, think, if, you don't think that they're going to start looking at, the Tiguan and the Taos and say, Hey, we could take this Taos. We could stick a GTI engine in it. We could call it a, a sports car. <laughs> I think Maybe if they decide to go down that road, they might do it with Audi or Porsche, but I don't think they would do it with the VW brand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, also because I think it'll make, uh, if you know, one of the things too, that it's 
that we can see across the board of all these performance SUVs is there's a few things in common. They are expensive, they're heavy, they're powerful, but also all of them are very well equipped. And um, I think that if Volkswagen wants to go down that road, they would also want to give it a more of a premium field uh, to to the car. So they would maybe do it with um, the Audi or uh, the Macan. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, obviously the they already have a very fast, I mean, the Macan Turbo is very fast, but that's an interesting yep. differentiation since we are trying, you know, I was trying to make this comparison between these super SUVs and muscle cars. Well, muscle cars were absolutely designed to be accessible by by normal people, by everybody. And they, they made a, a very strong effort to make them less expensive. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure that we're seeing that, at least not yet in the no. super SUVs. We're not. And I think that um, part of the stigma that you might have with having a high-performance Tiguan is something similar that happens with the Nissan GTR. As good as the Nissan GTR is, uh, even though it's getting a little old, but still as, as fast as it is, as incredibly quick as it is getting off the line, at the end of the day, you, when people ask you, what are you driving? I drive a Nissan. And unless you're really a car guy, you, you don't really have much respect or opinion about Nissans. You would have to explain why you spend over $100,000 for a Nissan. And I think that's the same problem that maybe they will find with uh, VW, especially here in the United States. Over here in the U.S., people have no problem spending dollars $60,000, dollars $90,000 on a very well-equipped Audi. But I think that people would have problems spending dollars $60,000, $70,000 on a Volkswagen. So do you think that it makes any sense to have a performance SUV or do you think that it's just absolute sacrilege? Um, yes and no. I mean, I'm in the same boat as you in the sense I much rather have a fast station wagon. It could be the, the European inside of me. I'd rather just have uh, an RS6 or an a or E AMG station wagon. But obviously from a marketing and value proposition standpoint, it absolutely makes sense because they're selling them and people want them. And uh, manufacturers will not be building these vehicles if they will not be able to move them. So in that regard, it does make sense. And it's making more sense because as we said previously, uh, the top eight cars that sold in the in Q3 in the United States were pickup trucks or SUVs and more and more manufacturers are jumping into this uh, bandwagon of performance SUVs. For example, you mentioned the Ford Edge ST. Well, Ford will now be offering also an Explorer ST. Yeah. Uh, so, and as you said, Mercedes pretty much on every SUV that they make, they offer an AMG version. So when it comes to that, it does make sense, but it depends on, on, on what you're looking to get out of it. I rather, like I said, have a, a station wagon, but most people nowadays would rather have an SUV. Well, and I think, I think that when I look at my own, you know, my own situation, when I look at my own situation, I think, okay, if I'm buying a family car, I do want it to drive well and I do want it to be fast. The problem is, is 
okay, great. I can buy a, a you know, a E63 AMG wagon, but my wife is going to veto me. She wants an SUV, right? I mean, she does. That's what she, she feels a more, a little bit more comfortable with it. She sits a little bit higher up. It feels a little bit more substantial. Actually, the weight difference isn't that big between uh, a GLE and an E-Class wagon. Um, the truth is that the, especially the Germans, they've started making their cars so heavy that there's not really that much difference in the weight between the sedans and the SUVs. I think too, like what, what are people looking, actually, let me rephrase that. Why are people buying performance SUV? What is it about the performance SUVs that they say, yes, I'm going to put down uh, anywhere between, you know, 90 to a couple hundred thousand dollars into the performance SUV. Well, I think there's a couple, I think there's a couple things that go into it. One is there's a certain number of buyers who just want the best. They want the, whatever the top of the range is, that's what they want. I think that that's actually as a substantial number of the people who are buying these. I think that also there's a, a substantial number of people who are, who are just like I was explaining, they say, I want something fast, but I need an SUV for my family, or they, they feel like they need an SUV for their family. And those people are saying, I don't want to sacrifice any more than I have to in order to have a vehicle that fits a, that's a family vehicle. And I think that there's a minority of people who really just do like SUVs and they say, you know, an SUV is the body style that I want. And if I can get a sporty one, then I'm going to do it. Um, yeah. I, I think that what, I think that what you're doing as a buyer is you're basically saying, I'm going to minimize my total number of compromises. And the idea of having an SUV, especially there's very, very few options right now, but especially if it was a three row SUV that was actually good at driving, man, I would be, I would be really excited to have something like that. And it would make a lot of sense for me and my family. But as far as like the engineering of it goes there, you know, they do a lot of tricks to hide the mass, but you still can't hide it all the way. It's still yeah. huge. It's still really heavy and it's never going to drive like, you know, a Lotus. I mean, it's just not in order to get something that is still sporty, right? So they say, I want something sporty. I want something spacious. Well, how do I, you know, how do I find something that matches all of those, all of those things? That's it for this week's limited slip podcast. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss our insights into next week's automotive news. If you want to help us keep the content coming, leave a five-star review and visit our businesses at DaveTheCarImporter.com where I help clients import their dream cars from South America and Europe for a flat fee or Borja's business on Facebook at AutoPros Utah, a full-service auto repair shop. This is David and Borja on this week's Limited Slip Podcast.